A Thoughtful Faith Podcast is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. Hello and welcome to a Thoughtful Faith Podcast. I'm David Nicolay and I'm primarily a listener, but today I'm an interviewer. Thoughtful Faith is a community and as such we, we need contributions from the listeners. And you can donate money if you like what you hear or like I'm doing right now, you can donate content. So... If there's a subject in Mormonism that you are inspired by, or if you recently read something that moves you, or if there's an idea that you think is misunderstood or neglected, you can pitch it to a thoughtful faith by joining our Facebook page and posting it. And there's a lot of great dialogue there, <clears throat> even if you just want to join and be a silent reader. Uh, or you can email a thoughtful faith at a thoughtful faith at mormonstories.org. That's a thoughtful faith at mormonstories.org. Our guest today is Adam Miller. Uh, Adam Miller is a professor of philosophy at Collin College in McKinney, Texas. He's the author of Bedio, Marion, and St. Paul, and Speculative Grace, and more recently, Rube Goldberg Machines, which is a collection of essays in Mormon theology, which is a really great book. I haven't read the other two. Um, and then also Letters to a Young Mormon, uh, which we're going to be talking about mostly today with a little bit of Rube Goldberg machines and whatever else we can use peppered throughout. Um, he's an editor of an experiment on the word and director of the Mormon theology seminar and the co-owner of a salt of, of the salt press, which is, I guess that's kind of a, like a, uh, independent, um, Mormon publishing, like for Mormon thought, to keep Mormon thought in the forefront and scholarly thought, right, Adam? That's right. That's right. And uh, Letters to a Young Mormon is a manuscript that I've just finished, but it uh, hasn't found a publishing home yet. So we'll be talking about it, and hopefully in the next year or two, okay. it'll be out there and people can read it, but it's not available yet. Okay. Yeah, because I think people are going to want it when they hear <laughs> how awesome it is. That would be a, that would be a positive outcome. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, okay. Oh, and, and I've, I've got to read this Richard Bushman quote because <laughs> this is great. Adam Miller is the most original and provocative Latter-day Saint theologian practicing today. And Richard Bushman said that. So does that make you uncomfortable? <laughs> uh I don't know. Claiming that someone is good and claiming that they're original are probably two different things. But I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll take what I can get. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Um, well, I think he's right. You are very provocative, and you know, I, I've had so many ideas. You think things that Mormons don't think. So I wanted to have that in there. That Richard Bushman said that because I want listeners to really perk up. Um, because this is different to me, anyways, and I feel like I. I know a little bit about Mormonism, and this is very different. 
uh, and it's very refreshing and useful to me. Um, so I'm really excited to get to pick your brain and just thank you very much for, for being willing to come on and do this interview. So I'm, <laughs> I'm really excited, <laughs> probably a little too excited. It's my pleasure. <laughs> so to start us off, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and you know your background and you know your background in Mormonism and also what got you started in theology and philosophy and you know what you love about it like what got you hooked with that well i I grew up in Pennsylvania I grew up in the church uh, but growing up in Pennsylvania you know uh, kind of a small church experience you know, there weren't any other members of the church apart from my sisters in my high school, for instance. And uh, I've got two sisters and a brother, my mom and dad. My dad grew up in the church, kind of. Mm -hmm. My mom joined the church while my dad was in the Navy. Some missionaries knocked on her door, and she said, I think my husband's a Mormon. <laughs> and the missionaries came in, and when my dad came home, he was... Uh, I think very surprised and also pleased that kind of gave him a chance to uh, pitch himself back into the church uh, with his whole heart. So you think he was kind of wanting to do that and just couldn't get around to it and then, hey, here's my opportunity? Yeah, I think it was something like that. Cool. I think, you know, he was in the Navy and his his, his own connection to the church had been uh, off and on. And uh, he was the chance, right? He's home from the Navy, and yeah. his, wife, his wife wants to join the church, and they're about to have some kids, and this is the occasion. Yeah. Uh, so I grew up there in Pennsylvania, then I served a mission in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And when I came back from my mission, I uh, went to school at BYU, where in my very first semester there at BYU, I met my wife, Gwen, and we've been married for about 15 years now, Gwen and I. We have three kids, a 12-year-old daughter, an 8-year-old boy, and a 7-year-old boy. Nice. My, my wife is a biology professor here at the college where I teach, so she uh, she keeps me honest <laughs> and grounded. And uh, my bachelor's degree that I got from BYU is in comparative literature. Okay. And I think that's kind of where it all started for me was with a kind of just a love to read and a kind of fledgling desire to write. Too. Yeah. And that bachelor's degree in Complet has been extremely influential for me and in all the rest of the work that I've done because it taught me how to it taught me how to read things with kind of care and attention and closeness and creativity. Hmm. There's you know, there's nothing like <clears throat> There's nothing like a professor sitting you down with a poem, right, and having you go through the thing phoneme by phoneme uh, 
to teach you how to read in a different way than you ever knew how to do before. Huh. And that's in the end has influenced a lot how I approach reading scripture. Like you know, uh, learning how to learning how to read a poem has a lot to do with the approach I bring to bear on reading scripture itself. That's really good. Yeah. I see that. So, oh, go on. Well, the emphasis in comparative literature is uh, on working in multiple language traditions. Mm-hmm. And so I spent some time studying Hebrew and Greek and French. Uh, but I really wasn't very good at any of the three of them. <laughs> and uh, what I loved most about comparative literature was the theory side of the work anyhow. Oh. And so when I went to grad school, I kind of switched tracks and uh, I did my graduate work, my uh, MA and PhD at Villanova University in, in their philosophy program. And my, now I work mostly in contemporary French philosophy, which of course is really simple and easy to understand. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And, uh, and questions in philosophy of religion. <laughs> Well, that's cool. Uh, so, and you really do have a good grasp of these things, I think, because, uh, like, how how your diverse background, I think, is probably what adds so much flavor to your writing. Because, you know, I don't have a very diverse background, and when I read what you've written, I can tell, like, man, because you have a list uh, in Letters to a Young Mormon of good books to read, and uh, let's see if I can find it here. It'd be good to rattle that off. That that list may be aspirational for myself. Oh, as really? Well. <laughs> yeah. Well, not entirely, but I I I'm thinking like I not only have I not heard of this guy, I don't even know how to pronounce that. Um, but I just want to I I want to. Okay, here it is: Laozi, Shakespeare, Austin, Dogen, Plato, Dante, Krishna. Is it Sappho? Yeah, Sappho. And Goethe? Am I saying that right? Goethe. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a, that's a German name. Don't worry uh, about that one. Let's see. Confucius, Tolstoy, and Homer. Uh, yeah, that's that's a good homework assignment. That's a pretty safe list. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, we're going to be talking about letters to a young Mormon and then a little bit of Rube Goldberg machines. I don't know if I mentioned that before. Uh, And you start off in letters to a young Mormon in the introduction. You say, I want to offer what perspective I can from the vantage that is mine about what it means to be a Mormon in the 21st century. Um, There's something you say in the first letter that I think kind of, for me, it really sums up the – it gives me a good picture of where you're going to go with this book of, of advice, really. Did you get the email I sent you about uh, the excerpts? Yeah, I have it right here. Okay, yeah, the first one on there about maps and roads. Sure, we start with that? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I say, um, you are an agent loose in the world. And as Paul puts it, you must work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You'll be surprised at how true this is. From the near side of trying, it may look like things have been pretty well mapped out for you. Just stick to the plan you sang about as a sunbeam, 
memorize your articles of faith, get your merit badges signed off, complete your personal progress, get good grades, be media savvy, go on a mission, go to the temple, have a family, etc. There may be a few details here and there to handle, but nothing major. You've got a map, you just have to follow it. But once you get to work, you'll be unnerved by the distance between the neat map in your hand and the rough terrain at your feet. Fighting to coordinate the two, you'll be tempted to throw the whole thing over, or, by way of compromise, to sit down, settle in, and spend your time gossiping about how great the map is. This latter kind of admiration is often mistaken for a religious life. Perhaps it is religious, but it is no life. Even sound maps are just maps. They are no substitute for real roads. And then the part about you are a pioneer, I really like that too. <laughs> yeah, you, you are a pioneer. Life has never before been lived in your body. Everything must be done again, as if for the first time. Yeah. I like your emphasis on the body in the real world, because it seems like uh, Christianity has been one to kind of – the body is an evil thing. And we have to whip it into submission, and we don't like talking about it. You know, when you just embrace it as, look, this is a gift, so, you know, what's there not to love? Uh, you, uh, okay, so obviously you didn't throw the whole thing over, like you say, you'd be tempted to throw the whole thing over, like Mormonism, throwing it out. <clears throat> but you haven't really accepted it exactly as it was handed to you either. Um, you've, you've done things with it. A lot of listeners have experienced major faith transitions and many of them don't stay in the church when they learn <clears throat> some of the more difficult things in our history. Uh, I want to know how you've, you know, in your book, you talked about when you returned from a mission, how you had this really rigid paradigm and how it softened. I want to, I want, I want you to talk a little bit about how, how you managed the move from your more rigid return missionary paradigm to where you are now without abandoning Mormonism. <clears throat> well, I think, I think there's a couple different ways to understand the kind of spiritual transformation that God is interested in baptizing us by immersion into. I think, I mean, one way to understand the kind of spiritual trans transformation we undergo is to understand it as a kind of continual process of growth and improvement and addition, right? So that line by line, piece by piece, you get better and better and bigger and bigger and smarter and smarter and stronger and stronger, right? And you become more and more like God then in that respect. Yeah. And I think, I think part of that is true, but I think what for me has been even more central to the kind of transformation that God is wrought in my life is a kind of is the part of the process that works in the opposite direction, where it's step by step, bit by piece, bit by bit, piece by piece, God has peeled layer after layer off of me, <laughs> right? Yeah. The, this kind of constant pruning, right? This kind of uh, not a process of addition here, but a spirit, a process of spiritual transformation that works by way of subtraction. Yeah, and and that is uh, that is difficult, right? That's difficult to have 
layer by layer, all God peel parts of you away. Yeah. Well, and I think about a sculptor. I read somewhere that when you're sculpting something, maybe someone said this at one time, but you you just remove what's not there. And Bruce Lee talked about hacking away the uh, unessentials when he was developing his Jeet Kune Do martial art. Uh, and hacking, I think, is a good word. <laughs> well, every every time in this podcast you can compare me to Bruce Lee, I appreciate <laughs> it. I think that is a... I think it is a win. Sweet, <laughs> but I think there's. I think that's right. I think you know we tell. There's that kind of uh, old anecdote that that we tell about. You know how God comes to the door and uh, offers to improve our homes for us, and we let him in, and we expect that he's going to, you know, change the curtains and put in some new carpet. Uh, but the first thing he does is he hauls in a sledgehammer and starts taking out walls <laughs> right yeah without <laughs> and, asking uh, yeah, with, yeah we, we invited him in but then what he's what he's going to do with us and with our lives is not at all what we had wanted him to do or what we expected him to do yeah, yeah and, and i think once that starts happening right once we once we start taking seriously god's claim that his ways are not mine and his thoughts are not mine then we have to be we have to be willing to let our ways and our thoughts go right as he relieves us of them and part of what you know part of what he's going to have to peel away in my experience part of what he's had to peel away are the preconceptions that i brought to bear on what it meant to be a mormon and what it is that mormons have to believe to be Mormons and my own ideas about God and about what he wanted my life to be like, right? Part of what I have had to give up, uh, part of what I have had to give back to him were my own sets of ideas about those things. Yeah. I so think... there's, there's, there's that kind of crucial, right? There's that kind of crucial moment when, when after God has taken those things away from you, then you have to decide whether or not, well, that's it. We're done, right? Uh, you know, I'm not a Mormon anymore because of the ideas that I thought I had about Mormonism, God's taken those away, right? And then you decide to leave. Or, or, or that's the very moment in which you recognize that God has finally put you in a position to get your real religious life underway. Yeah. Uh, but that's a difficult moment. It is like like your your sledgehammer uh, metaphor. If that's a wall, I had a bunch of pictures hanging on that he just took out without asking. Right, that was that was the wall that my pictures of me, my prom picture was hanging on that. My <laughs> my trophies were hanging on that wall. <laughs> you, you you have your prom picture hanging up. Okay. <laughs> no, I don't actually. Don't. I don't want anyone to ever see my. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's that's really good because you talk later about the stories we tell about ourselves, and I I'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. But <clears throat> that's a great metaphor. Um, I think. I think what's hard for people in the church is that what they're working with that God is now taking out with a sledgehammer was something that was given to them by people that they trusted, like prophets and other things. You know, so I think that maybe God doesn't doesn't necessarily take 
everyone's walls out the same. He doesn't necessarily rearrange everything the same because of where we are in life. You know, you talk about how the the Hebrews had a very specific way of looking at the world in Genesis 1, and you take that, that their reading of the creation of the world literally, and that they literally thought the world was built that way, and God literally took that and ran with that as a means of showing them his hand. And he wasn't really interested in, well, guys, there's, there's actually uh, elements, and if only you had a periodic table. So we need to discuss that before we can talk about how I created the earth, you know, you, you talk about how he's just like, fine, I can use that. I, I, I speak unto men in their own language, uh, in their weakness, so that they, you know, Doctrine and Covenants section one, uh, so that they may learn. And uh, I, I think, for me anyways, it took a while to come to terms with that, you know, that, that it's okay um, that the person I learned this thing from was a prophet because it's not a prophet's job to know totally everything. They have a very specific role. At least that's the way I see it. And it's to testify of certain things and not to know the answer to everything. Would you agree? I mean, it seems to me that pretty clearly a prophet's job is to say things that will bring you into relationship with God. Mm -hmm. And that if you and I end up valuing the things that they say, more than the relationship that that is meant to provoke, incite, kickstart, right? Then we'll have missed the point anyway, right? The, the things that prophets say are a kind of bridge meant to bring us into connection with God. And once the connection's made and God himself gets to work in the first person in your heart and mind, then you let that have full sway. Yeah. So prophets are almost a kind of catalyst because you talk in Rube Goldberg machines about how the word that was translated to atonement in Greek can also mean a catalyst. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, that's cool. That's a nice way to talk about prophets, I think. I mean, prophets are a kind of – the scriptures themselves are a kind of catalyst. In that they're not the end. They're just the beginning of revelation. Yeah, I think that's right. That's cool. It's so, good. It, you know, the, the scriptures are nice. They they record for us the revelations that other people got. And that is profoundly useful, right? That is extremely productive. Yeah. But and the I'll, point the point of their having got those revelations is to clue us into the fact that it's possible to get revelations. Yeah. Uh, and if we just live off of theirs, then that kind of secondhand religious life, uh, that's not really a religious life. No, you're right. You're right, because everyone has to do it themselves. I think Hugh Nibley said something like, uh, the play may be, be happening over and over, but the props are new for, for you. You know, It's all new to me. I don't care who's come before. It has nothing to do with my experience. I get to do it all over again, complete from the beginning. Yeah, as, as we said earlier, right, everything has to be done again as if for the first time Yeah. with, with you in your body. And it doesn't matter if your parents did it or your wife did it or your children did it or your grandparents did it. Right? You have to do it again and you have to do it in the first person in your body. Yeah. And it's really felt like that because sometimes I feel like I was the one climbing Mount Sinai looking for God and it's painful and difficult and wishing that I could piggyback on Moses or someone else that I used to piggyback on. But there comes a point where it just doesn't work anymore. Like I can't live on – a borrowed experience. Um, I, I want to talk about your concept of grace. 
first of all, did you did, did you want to cover any more of what we were talking about before with? Because I feel like I feel like we did good with that. <laughs> no, I think I think that was good. Okay, cool. So yeah, I want to talk about your concept of grace. Um, I'm thinking about your explanations of it in in Rube Goldberg Machines in the second essay, where you say the primary difficulty faced in approaching life in terms of grace is that grace so easily slips the knot of our attention. Our preoccupation with what is given and received so easily eclipses any awareness of its having been given, or its givenness, as you say. Uh, How easy it is to receive a gift from someone and, in light of its heft, shine, and appeal, forget that it is a gift. How difficult it is to keep its giftedness at the forefront of our attention. So, kind of in light of that, define define grace. In some ways, uh, I think it's fair to say that the only thing I ever write about is grace. Both of my but my dissertation was about grace. <laughs> my my first book. Uh, Eminent Grace was about grace. My the book that's forthcoming this summer from uh, Fordham University Press is uh, Speculative Grace is about grace. <laughs> a lot of a lot of Rube Goldberg machines is uh, explicitly preoccupied with the topic of grace. Uh, so in some ways, you know, this is this is the one thing that I'm always talking about in one way or another. I think one way to introduce the topic of grace is to just frame it in terms of the kind of classical distinction between grace and works, right? Where, you know, I think that distinction breaks down in lots of really interesting and revelatory ways, but as a place to start, I think it's useful. When we relate to the world in terms of works, then we end up seeing everything in the world as a means to an end, right? Everything becomes part of a project, right? right? Everything is everything becomes instrumental. It takes on this kind of utilitarian character. If I do such and such, then I can get such and such a result, right? And my relationship to whatever whatever work it is I'm doing is then oriented by whatever goal it is that I'm aiming at. Okay, so work has work tends to produce that that quality to our experience of the world where everything shows up as as a means to an end or an instrument. Uh, but grace on the other hand, in light of a grace, the world shows up not just as means to an end, but things show up as ends in themselves. Right? Things show up as worthy of our time and attention and appreciation regardless of what we might or might not get out of them, right? Yeah. They just show up as as worthwhile in and of themselves. And I think that's a kind of that's a kind of basic distinction that I'm always working with in one way or another when I'm talking about the importance of grace. Especially like, you know, with the example that you gave here with the passage from Rube Goldberg machines. It's easy when someone gives you a gift, it's easy to get caught up in the thing that was given uh, and what you could do with it or what advantages you'll gain from having this thing now or the pleasure it could bring you without your appreciating the fact of its having been 
a gift in and of itself, regardless of what you may or may not be able to do with it. Yeah. You know, I, I, I've recently, I've, I've got this wall in my backyard that's covered with English ivy. It's really beautiful, but English ivy is, it's, it gets out of control really easy. Yeah. And it can kill everything. It creates what's called an ivy forest, where if you leave it alone pretty soon, every tree and every, everything has English ivy everywhere and nothing else grows. And so I, I took it upon myself to clear it all out. Well, and leave some of the main, because I like how it looks, so I wanted to mostly clear it out. But in the process, I was thinking only about getting done with the task and what it's going to be when I'm done. And it was miserable because there's so much dust in there. I found a dead rat, <laughs> you know. <laughs> nice. Yeah. There's a whole ecosystem in these vines, you know. There, there, there was a duck nest, seriously, every two feet. I found egg fragments and, you know, I, I've seen them hatch out of there before and walk down to the creek, so I know about them. <laughs> but, yeah, I had no idea the scope of the duck city that was in my vine. Right. <laughs> but, anyways, it's just a really difficult thing. And it wasn't until – actually, you know, I was I was reading your book and like, I, I started to approach it differently and that, you know, this is something – I'm not going to worry about the end. I'm just going to do it. And there's joy to be found in that. And once I started thinking about it like that, man, it got so much easier and I started to look forward to it. It was just this thing I got to do with my hands out in the dirt, in the air. And I wasn't thinking in the least bit about, you know, uh, uh, it as a means to an end. You know, I was just experiencing it and it became joyable, like uh, enjoyable to me. Um, Is that kind of what you had in mind? I think that's, in my estimation, that's it's that's the fundamental revelation, right? the discovery that the work that we have to do, and on a Mormon account, I think we'll always have to do uh, that. That work is itself a grace. Right, that uh, that we can experience that work in an entirely different way than we typically do, that we can experience work as grace. Right, then then in some ways, there's no there there is no bigger gift of grace than work itself. But then then what we have to do is uh, we can it involves a kind of shift in perspective right here between foreground and background where. I think what happens a lot of times in in the gospel and with the way that we tend to talk about things in Mormonism is that grace ends up uh, always only appearing within the context of work. So that work is always in the foreground and when we do experience grace, we experience it as as a particular kind of work where there can be this kind of shift in perspective where uh, work or grace comes to the foreground in our experience of the world and work recedes into the background and we end up, instead of experiencing grace as a particular kind of work, we end up experiencing all work itself as a kind of grace. And then that fundamentally transforms our relationship to both grace itself and our own experience of work. Yeah. Well, and like you talk in Rube Goldberg Machines, how grace is not really a special kind of work because, you know, we think about, oh, we do do this kind of work. 
and we do as much as we can. And then Jesus steps in and he does a kind of work that we can't do. And we refer to that as grace. Yeah. And then we think about it in terms of work after that. And it's not really. And I, I, I like, I think you, you must have, yeah, you use this, uh, this comparison to Jesus drinking the bitter cup and this, that we kind of exist in this state of, of life just flowing to us without means of compulsion, as it were. It's just flowing yeah. to us. And some of it's, some of it's painful, some of it's pleasurable, but it's all a gift. And we're not to focus on whether we particularly like that gift because then, then we get distracted and it distorts what it is. We're, we're to focus on the gift. And, and you talk about how it's kind of summed up in Jesus saying, well, I've got it pulled up here. There's a few places that he says it, but where he's talking to Peter, he says, it says, this is John 18, 11, then said Jesus unto Peter, put up thy sword into thy sheath, in, into the sheath, the cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? And since reading that, I've, I've, I've started to think about it a little bit more along the lines of what you're talking about, where it's like King Benjamin, you know, every moment, every breath you take, he, he doth grant us life from one moment to the other, from one breath to the other, however he says it. Um, and and sometimes it's good things and sometimes it's bad. And I really like that. I'm no, I'm no longer – I don't have to sit there and be mad at God for something because this is just how life flows to me. And Jesus got it too. And he says, my father hath given me a cup, you know. Um, nevertheless, and he didn't want to drink it. You know, in Doctrine and Covenants it talks about – would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. And then he says that thing, nevertheless. Yeah. And you talk a lot about nevertheless, how that's a really crucial word where we, we decide to embrace what's given, even if it's incredibly painful, it's, it's a gift. You know, we're not looking at the heft and the shine and the appeal of it. We're just saying, thank you. And yes, I'll drink it. I'll drain this cup and it's going to suck, but I'm going to do it. (laughs) Um, I don't know. That, that's that's really powerful to me. And how, because you view life as kind of a, a a constant stream of gift, of grace, of of life, you know, experience from God, our bodies are brought to the forefront. And I I wrote you and I talked about how it's so different than the way we take what Paul said about mortifying the flesh. And you have the monastic movements where. We, we go live in a tree or whip ourselves or go without everything that we can think of so that we can just whip these nasty bodies into submission and anything sexual is bad. But you say in Rube Goldberg Machines, you say discussions of, of at one mint, and then I wrote grace in, in brackets, should begin with and lead back to life. Not life in the abstract, but life as it is lived in the everyday. Life with its damp, earthy smell its messy embeddedness, its sticky embodiment, life with all of its breathing, sleeping, speaking, eating, defecating, building, feeling, figuring, copulation, and gesturing. And you said defecating and copulation. <laughs> I did say, I did say that. <laughs> yes. Uh... So we, we, we could have been even more, uh, more frank, I think, than... <laughs> yeah, yeah, you were really <laughs> saying defecation and copulation. Yeah, you were really professional about that. <laughs> I should ask my my three year old to rephrase that. <laughs> but yeah, you know, and I really like that. It 
I don't have to run from things. You know, people are so afraid about talking. I heard one, one scholar talk about Christ, the problem with, with Christology in discussing dirt is what he called it, you know, mm-hmm. defecation. He said, discussing dirt, the problem with dirt. And you don't have a problem with dirt. Well, I, theoretically. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think you make some really good points here. I mean, I think a lot of this, uh, this kind of shift in our perspective that reframes our experience of work in terms of grace, rather than grace always being a kind of uh, derivative example of work. I think that experience has a lot to do uh, with the shift in how we experience our own bodies, you know, we could we could talk about that same distinction between means and ends. We could talk about that in terms of uh, how we relate to time, right? Whether or not in our experience of time, the present is in the foreground, and preoccupations with the past or the future or in the background, or whether, as I think too often it is for most of us. You know, we end up we live in our heads, right? Thinking uh, all constantly daydreaming about things that happened in the past or things that might happen in the future, such that all of our present experience always gets framed as uh, as means to some future end, right? Or as the product of some past experiences. But if you know if if we're not always if we're not always lost in our own in our own plans and regrets and fantasies if we're not always living in our heads in the past or the future because that's the only that's the only place you can live in the past or the future is in your head yeah if we come back if we come back to the present moment the one of the most striking features of paying attention to what's going on in the present moment is a kind of vibrant embodiedness of the present moment, the way that there are a constant flow of sensations in your body from head to toe as you go about doing anything, like removing the ivy in your backyard, right? There's a kind of, yeah. there's a kind of pleasure just in the physical aspect of the work, even if you'd maybe prefer to be inside watching football or something, <laughs> right? But, but once you let that go, right, once you let go of the fact that, oh, I wish I were doing someplace else, doing something else, and you bring yourself to the present moment, uh, you end up back in your body and you end up feeling alive again and the work that you're doing, even though it may be uh, a means to an end, uh, acquires value just as an end in itself and shows up as as grace, not just the kind of torture on the way to someplace else yeah i that's that's the thing like i don't think a lot of philosophers offer advice (laughs) you know what i mean they just that's that's probably good in general (laughs) yeah uh but but you do and it's so helpful and i was telling my wife like you know i have this problem where i spend so much of my day in my head planning and thinking and preparing for this 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 moment of I don't know greatness or whatever that never comes. You know, I'm. I used to play this this uh, video game called Diablo. It's it's this role playing game, and you know you're you're a wizard. You're running around. You and you you have to level up because it's. Anyways, they have these spell books that you find and you click on them and you, you know it, it ups your level. And there was a hack in the program and I could dupe spell books. Well, I spent my whole time just duping spell books. I mean seriously, yeah. like hours. 
And then one day it dawned on me, like, man, this is no way. This game sucks. I sit down here in the dark duping spellbooks for two hours, and it, it just dawned on me. That's not fun. And I think that's – I always <laughs> joke with my brother, and I say, you're duping spellbooks when he tells me, you know, oh, I got to work on this. I got to work on it. You know, and I'm just thinking and worrying about this or fantasizing about this. I'm like, don't dupe spellbooks. Get out there and have fun. Like, that's no way to live. Um, so I've now – you know, probably alienated a lot of the audience. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great example. That's a really great example. Yeah. Yeah, right. This is, that's often how we treat Mormonism, right? We often treat religion as if it were this thing uh, meant entirely to help us level up, right? Yeah, yeah. But, if, but to, to pursue religion in that way is miserable. It's miserable. That's yeah. no kind of – it's no kind of life because you're not even – as you point out, it's no kind of life because you're not even living your life. You're trying to get to someplace else, right, where maybe yeah. in the future you would have some kind of life. But I don't think – that's not what the gospel is meant to, meant to do. The gospel is meant to reorient us uh, in a way that will transform our relationship to work and plant us back in our bodies and start a process of resurrection – that doesn't just happen after we're dead, but a process of resurrection that, you know, is meant to start when you sit down on Sunday and eat the sacrament. Yeah. You find yourself back in your body, right? Resurrected. Yeah. And uh, I think in, in Mormonism, probably all Christianity, it's really easy to just get enamored with this idea of heaven. And when heaven comes, well, then every tear will be dried. Every You know, that's when we're really joy. And in this life, we... We throw off all these joys so that we can have a great life in heaven. That's how I live my life. And yeah, it sucks when you do it like that. Um, yeah, well, that's, that's a human problem, right? It's not just a Mormon problem. It's not just a Christian problem. That's what it means to be a human being is to be stuck in those feedback loops of fantasy and regret uh, that prevent us from actually being alive in our lives. Yeah. Right? That's what we mean by spiritual death. Spiritual death is that experience of living a life – that's not alive or of having your life go on without you, without your being present to live it. That's spiritual death. Yeah. And Jesus talks about, I'm going to paraphrase, but he says something about like, I I came to bring life more abundantly. Yeah. I like that because it's much more now oriented. Like, Oh, this isn't about some heaven someday. This is about right now and giving you joy right now. And when I truly live the gospel, it does. I'm not talking about just checking off my home teaching or something. Um, you, you describe charity in Rube Goldberg machines as, as a willingness to have life made difficult by by people you didn't have to help or thoughts – I'm paraphrasing – thoughts you didn't have to think, objects that you didn't have to care about but you decided to and that that is really the embodiment of what charity is. And when I'm there, I do have joy now. You know, I'm not waiting for some heaven. Um we're going we're gonna to come back to this grace idea a lot because, like you said, <laughs> you don't write about anything but grace. No, not you're, really. You're the grace guy, <laughs> which Mormons need. We need a grace guy. Um, you – oh, another thing you say is – as where is this? This is in Letters to a Young Mormon. You say, as Mormons, we can't hide from this not knowing. And you're talking about the experience of ignorance as people. But also as Mormons, we can't hide from this not knowing because more than anything else, Mormonism is a way of living rather than dodging life. Part of not dodging life is owning this ignorance. 
And I think that's going to bring us into the, the next thing I want to talk about because well, ignorance – yeah? Well, let me, let me just suggest one thing about that yeah. in connection with what, what we said – what we were saying right at the start is that I think that that's, that's one of the first real indications that God is at work in your life that you discover how deep your ignorance goes. Right? You start to get a feel for how little you actually know. Right? Now, you can, you can see that, right? You can see that as a kind of a failure. You can see that as a kind of religious failure. You're discovering that you don't really know the things that you thought you knew. Or, which I think, which I think uh, is actually the case, you can see that as the first real sign that God is at work in your life, showing you that your ways are not his ways and your thoughts are not his thoughts. And that part of your being exposed to him and coming in relationship to him will involve your owning your ignorance. You're owning up to it and not just running from it. Yeah. Well, you talk about how – because the next thing I want to go into is, is this idea of hunger yeah. as a revelation. You talk about how Jesus' first revelation after going out in the wilderness, being led by the Spirit into the, into the wilderness, was his hunger. Because it talks about he was, how he was famished and that that's a revelation. That's a gift. Um, and, and, you know, ignorance, it's a dearth of knowledge. And, yeah, I, I, I'm constantly discovering how ignorant I am, especially now that I have kids. Yeah. <laughs> that's what <laughs> kids are for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Little humility machines. <laughs> but uh, it is that dearth of knowledge that drives me in. I think of what Jesus says where he says, Blessed are all they that hunger, that do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. You know, and it's the hunger that drives us. And it really is a gift. Like, it was a gift for him in the wilderness. Um, your book is so freaking great. <laughs> I, seriously, I can't wait for it to be published because I've got this manuscript and I can't. I'm not going to share it with anybody. Um, but I want to so badly. Uh so talk talk about hungers as gifts and how you suggest dealing with them because that's one of the letters you you talk about advice on how to care for you don't say just deal with you say care for hunger so talk about that for a minute if you will well I think the most straightforward thing we could say about hunger would be that our hungers don't need to be gotten rid of, they need to be redeemed. And the key to redeeming our hungers, you know, the kind of actual physical hunger for food or our hunger for knowledge or, uh, you know, even our hunger for intimacy with other people, especially the kind of, especially kind of sexual intimacy, right? Those kinds of deep corporeal hungers, we have to, we have to see those hungers themselves as a grace. Right, to to begin to relate to those hungers as something to be cared for in and of themselves, and not just as means to an end to someplace else. Right, so that's, we just do the. You're, you're, we're meant to do the same kind of thing. I think God wants with our hungers as as with removing the ivy in your backyard. Right, the mm. the God. What God wants us to do is to come back around to caring for the hunger itself without trying to get rid of it either by uprooting it or by satisfying it once and for all right those are the those are the two kind of those are the two kind of poles 
uh, at the opposite ends of the spectrum that we can take with respect to our hunger. We can try to root it out of us, right, and get rid of it and not have that particular kind of hunger anymore, right, which is the kind of thing that I think uh, we sometimes lead teenagers to think they ought to do with their with their sex drive, right? With this kind yeah. of thing, you're just going to root it out, right? And then you don't you don't do that anymore, right? Right. right, right? And when they when they discover that that they can't root it out, right? The temptation is to just go the, to the opposite end of the spectrum and do everything in their power to to try to satisfy it to get it to stop. <laughs> and right? that doesn't work. And that doesn't work either. I've tried uh, that. <laughs> you cannot. You know, we don't need to get too personal Hold here. But, backfires. <laughs> you can't you can't get rid of it by satisfying it, and you can't get rid of it by rooting it out. I we have to we have to bring ourselves back around to to learning how to care in the present moment for the hunger as the kind of thing it actually is as a kind of as a grace rather than just as as a gift rather than just as a problem well in rooting hunger out especially to to try to just throw it out of our lives altogether especially sexual hunger because of the way i think sex is characterized in christianity and mormonism as something that, well, it's good, but really it's also not good. It's kind of evil. you know. So <clears throat> I think when we try to root it out and we find out that that doesn't work, it engenders this endless cycle of just crippling guilt and shame where you're constantly worried about, well, am I worthy to do this? Am I worthy to do that? Oh, I got to see the bishop again. I got to, you know, and that's that's awful. But when you just, you know, your advice is more to care for it and and – like you talk about with the sexual hunger, you're, you talk about when you feel this well up in you, disconnect it from the fantasy, the thoughts about you know acting out sexually or whatever, and just take a step back and look at and acknowledge the feeling, the hunger itself, as as though it's a fire, and watch it watch it come in waves and grow, and then die down again, you know. And that's so tremendously helpful because you're not condemning it. You're not judging it. You're just saying, this is what it is. Why don't you, well, why don't you look at it for a minute? Don't connect it to fantasy. And it's, it's really true because, you know, the thing you talk about with fantasy, I, after having read that, <laughs> I drive around a lot for work. And, you know, I've been on this health kick lately where I'm trying to eat really well. And I've got this, uh, this bag of basically produce that I bring around with me. And it's not fun, <laughs> but I, I, I've, I've discovered that certain combinations work really well. Like a mouthful of broccoli does not do, but if you throw a cherry tomato in there, suddenly it's like, oh yeah, this isn't bad at all. But when compared to Burger King, you know, it just withers and dies. <laughs> but in your book, you talk about how we should we should eat like we want to eat again, and leave a little bit of hunger for later. And anyways, I was. I was driving past Burger King and I was just hit with this huge craving of like, oh man, they, I, I want what they have. And I was, you know, I was, I was fantasizing about it as pathetic as that is. <laughs> and I thought about what you said and I, I willfully disconnected the fantasy, the thought of me eating a burger. I, I threw it out and I just sat with my hunger for a minute and it totally made it manageable. Because it's the fantasy that comes in and just takes your, your legs out, you know? And when you do away with the fantasy, for me, I had control again. And hunger was something that wasn't my enemy and it was manageable, you know? Well, that's, that's a really great point. 
but especially with respect to uh, sexual hungers the the temptation is always to either live in fantasies or right future fantasies or to live in past regrets right in either case in either case whether we're we're stuck in feedback loops of guilt and shame or we're stuck in feedback loops of fantasies and daydreams in either case we've abandoned the present moment right but if if we're willing to to do the one thing right that we usually aren't willing to do if we're willing to step back into the into the present and feel whatever it is our body is actually feeling right not step not, maybe not maybe not step back from it right but actually step into it and take a look at what the actual you know feel what the physical sensations actually are involved in either either a kind of uh, hunger for food or even a kind of hunger for sex. But if we let ourselves feel the physical sensations without just running off into either fantasy or shame, then our relationship to it is transformed in a way, I think, that redeems it. It literally redeems it, literally delivers it back to us as a grace rather than as a kind of punishment. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I thought about fear, the fear that comes with doubt because like you said it's painful when god knocks out a wall with a sledgehammer and there's 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 a gripping fear that comes with that but that's a kind of hunger because it shows me that i'm in need of something and you talk about how our bodies are primarily organs of passing there's always something passing in and then passing out there's there's knowledge that comes in and then there's a dearth of knowledge that's created and that's that's the hunger and you even talk about how we need to really be comfortable with the fact that we are dying and that our spirit passes in and our spirit's going to pass out and that the hungers we feel are a kind of a reminder that that this body is a thing that 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 dies and that we need to care for it in that way and, and appreciate the hungers and um but you talk about about uh rejecting the hunger and how that's rejecting what's given and I want to – kind of what I want to go into next, if you're okay with, with – if you think we've covered hunger because I kind of want to move into sin now. That's and nice. What sin is to you because this is and, – and this is this is going to be uncomfortable maybe to, to some listeners because when you start defining sin, redefining sin, people get nervous because they see sin as something that, that ticks God off. <laughs> and when we – you know, when he sees us doing it, he's like, oh, man, that David, I told him not to do that. And I had someone ask me the other day, do you think – you think uh, I cause God to cry? Like he, he's if he's not ticked, you've, you've broken his heart. Oh, look what you did to God! You know, so sin is a really touchy thing to redefine. Um, and I, you know, I mean, I, I believe in a God that is able to be hurt and he's vulnerable. But you kind of describe sin in a way that's, I guess, it's more personal to me, and God's just waiting for me. But I, I might do things that separate me from him, you know, and it's not so much about like ticking him off or making him sad. So I just want to kind of preface that because. Yeah, I don't I don't think that God thinks that sin is about him. Right. I don't think God thinks that much of anything is about him. <laughs> right. I, I yeah. think it's, it's about us. Right. God. God's not worried. God's not angry about sin because it because it harmed him in some way. God gets God gets angry or sad weeps at the sight of our sins because of what it is doing to us right mm -hmm. there's 
it's not sin's not a problem insofar as it breaks kind of abstract laws that God has set in place, right? But sin sin is a problem because of the intrinsically negative consequences it has for our experience of life. Yeah. So how would you define sin? I mean, you, you kind of got at it a little bit earlier, so let's let's go at it full bore and just define sin for me in the world of Adam Miller. We could say something like sin is an unwillingness to accept the costs and vulnerabilities that life entails. And we could say that sin is flight from the present moment. Or we could say sin is a kind of self-absorption in our fantasies or memories that prevents us from actually caring for ourselves and other people where we are. Okay, so it's you also characterize it as a rejection of life as it is given. Yeah, I think that's right. And not really, I mean, I guess you could tie that in with the rejection of God, but you have a lot of parallels where you say, you know, life, when you accept life, you are accepting God because you're accepting everything he gives to you. So in that way, sin is a rejection of life as it is given and and, and a rejection of God and what he is giving you. You're saying, you know what, this is a bitter cup and I will not drink. Right. And that, that separates you. There is no nevertheless there. Uh, and, and I guess when I was thinking about how to go about this discussion of sin, <clears throat> I wanted to use a few examples so that we could kind of see how it looks when someone sins by your kind of new definition of sin. Um, and of course, you know, I couldn't come up with anything. <laughs> I found the answer in your, your Rube Goldberg machines. <laughs> we can give you some credit, too. Uh, sweet. Because <laughs> I did look. Uh, but you talk about <clears throat> sin refuses givenness. This is in uh, uh, Notes on Life, Grace, and Atonement. Sin refuses givenness and thus life, by screening experience in terms of its perceived desirability. Some things are reflexively marked as desirable, so we hunger for them or fantasize about them. Some things are reflectively marked as undesirable, so we flee from them and worry over them. Uh, some things are reflectively marked as neither, so we ignore them. Sin refuses the unconditional givenness of life by imposing its own conditions. Um, and you talk about about how, how some things that you kind of think characterize sin are, you already touched upon this, but fantasizing about the future and fretting about past mistakes or the past in general, which I do a lot of both of those. And this is something I wanted to kind of work with a little because I totally agree with you. But at the same time, I see... Well, and I, I want to say I agree with you because I see what it's done in my life. You know, in my little laboratory, it's done nothing but bring me pain and distance me from God. And and I'm not, I'm in my head. I'm not in my body, like you say. I'm not I'm not there with my wife and kids. I'm worrying about some future thing that hasn't happening that's not happening right now. And you you where is it? This thing you say. Uh, the results are predictable. Striving after the gnat of pleasure. Restraining away from the sting of pain, we ignore the bulk of life and marvel at our own morbidity, failing to be where we are, 
to receive what is given, to fill what we are filling. We fantasize instead about what has not come, fret over what has already passed, and are bored to tears by the grace of what is actually present. And then you say fantasy, fear, and boredom, the hallmarks of sin. I thought that was really interesting because I'll tell you, I never would have thought of those things as sin. I would have thought of them as annoying, uh, you know, but not sin until you, you're pointing this out. And I see, yeah, this is what disconnects me from joy, from the moment. And then the next thing you wrote, and I kind of want to ask you about this. You wrote boredom, colon, the hallmark of sin with a question mark. So I kind of didn't know what you were getting at there. And it's an intriguing idea. I, I, I've given you a lot right now. <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe you could just start and start hacking away at what I've done to you. <laughs> try to make sense of that. Well, we could try to say something about boredom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and also maybe talk about, well, you already have talked about how fantasy and, and, and fretting about the past are sin. And I think that's kind of self-evident when you think about it. But this is a new way. But yeah, do talk about boredom. How is this a hallmark of sin? Well, with respect to with respect to fantasizing about the future or fretting about the past, right? I'm not. I'm I'm certainly not advo- Just to be clear, before we talk about boredom, right? I'm not advocating that people don't make plans for the future, right? I'm not I'm not saying that people shouldn't have goals or. Right, that we shouldn't try to accomplish things, or that we shouldn't try to make things better, that we shouldn't aim to improve our lives or the world around us or conditions for other people. Okay. Right, but I, but I am saying that you know that's because that's work, right? That's work. Yeah. That the work that we do to make those things better. Uh, that's all. There's no. There's no place else to go, right? There's just work. It's not as if you could go to some place where there isn't work to do, or right. uh, as if, as you know, even as as the Mormons, right? Our our notion of heaven, I think, is distinct from most of the rest of Christianity because we think heaven is a place where the work really gets done, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> where, yeah. When we get there, we can get the work for real, uh, <laughs> the way that God does, and and I think that's right. But I think that. The, but what has to happen, I think, is that our relationship to that work has to change such that we take up that work uh, itself as a grace. And I think that, that that transformation in our relationship to the ends that we're pursuing, that, such that the means themselves get treated as ends, that's the precondition for doing good works in a way that is good. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, we end up pursuing good things in ways that aren't themselves good, right? We end up pursuing positive ends in a way that is negative, right? We end up pursuing some kind of future abundant life that – we end up pursuing some future abundant life in a way that cuts us off from the abundance of life as we're living it right now. Mm-hmm. And I think that's – right. that's the problem. So we're not, we're not going to get rid of work, right? And we don't want to ignore the past. We want to be historically – conscious but our but the future and the past have to have to take a back seat to our wholehearted full-bodied engagement in the present moment as a gift then our relationship to the future and the past those relationships right the future and the past are themselves redeemed by our proper relationship to the present moment but if we're always trying to put the present if we're always trying to put the future and the past first uh, and leaving the present moment in the back seat 
then not only will our relationship to the present moment be lost, but we will never relate to the future or the past in a way that will save them either. Yeah. Well, and I, I one of the questions I ask you, like, is, is using an umbrella in a rainstorm a way of rejecting life as it is given or painkillers, you know? And I think, I think you know, I, I, I'm going to use an umbrella. Um, but like you said, we're not focused on the future and the past because I, I really think like sin is a rejection of anything uh, that, that God's giving at you. It's a rejection of anything. And, and I guess – because Jesus would have used an umbrella. You know, he used a boat to get across the water. He didn't just walk into it and start swimming. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it's okay. largely a question. It's largely a question here not of using the umbrella but of the way that you use the umbrella. Or the way you think about the umbrella. And there is a way of using the umbrella that is sinful that will cut you off from your own experience of life as the gift that it is. But yeah. there is a way of using the umbrella that will reveal the umbrella itself as a grace, right? Yeah. Well, my wife, you know, she, she uh, w- with both our children, she did a natural birth. And she's so worried. Like she considers herself a weak person. And she's, oh, I'm going to faint. I'm going to, you know, and I kept reminding her, well, the human race has done quite well um, without painkillers and such for a very long time. But I have no clue. (laughs) I I was just totally pretending through the whole experience. Yeah, we might just let that example go. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But uh, she she didn't do any painkillers and it was incredibly painful for her. But she said that after her birth – with both of them, she said she felt so incredibly alive, like the color of life was more real. Everything was more real because she'd just gone through this incredible experience of givenness, of grace, of life that was handed to her and it was difficult and she drank it, you know, and it, it brought her more in touch with life. And and I, I almost, almost wish I knew what that was like, <laughs> but I don't. <laughs> but, the, you know, that's, it's a really cool thing to hear that, and well, that's that's my that's my understanding of what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane, right, and on the cross. I mean, I'm not I'm not a big fan of a kind of punitive version of the <laughs> atonement where Jesus has to suffer the punishment for every single thing to balance the books. Yeah, right? yeah. but I but I think I, I think. Uh, a richer way to think about what happens in the garden is on the lines of what happened to your life, to your wife, right? Uh, in that experience of giving birth, is that Jesus here? Jesus here swallows the whole thing, swallows the whole thing, all of it, right? And when he comes out the other side, he is so full of life that even death can't hold him. Come the fount of every blessing to my Thank you for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith. To discuss this podcast, check us out at athoughtfulfaith.org. The music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafrazier.com. Hither by
How great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness lie like a fetter. Mind my wandering heart to be prone to. Take and see, see it for.